so today I, um, there's a little part of me that was fearful that um, this topic was uh, repetitive, um, but I tend to like repetitive things, especially in when it comes to Buddhism. Um, I've been at this for almost 20 years now, um, which is like pretty much my whole adult life. Um, and um, I was listening to a talk two days ago, and it, there was a description of the first noble truth. And I was just like, oh my God, um, Dukkha, you know? And it, there was just a description of the first noble truth that just like pointed directly to this thing that I thought was a problem that was very unique to me that I had to solve. And somehow I've gotten off course and fucked up my life to such a degree that I have this very unique problem where I just can't be satisfied, you know? And then I'm listening to things like, okay, so Buddha's first thing was this unsatisfactoriness of life. And he went on to describe it, you know, and, and, um, kind of, there's this exegesis on what suffering is. And I was just like, Oh my God, you know, and it reminds me because right now I'm, you know, I'm looking to shift to part-time work and I'm looking at different ways that I can get more involved in study. And I'm looking at different organizations that have study programs online and stuff like that, you know, um, and there's, you know, there's four traditions, four schools of Tibetan Buddhism and the Kaju and the Nyingma are very much more practice-oriented uh, and, and a little bit more like Zen in terms of some of their, their ultimate views. The Galukpa, which is what I have the most experience in, um, they're much more analytical and kind of academic. And I'm looking at programs from the kind of a Kaju Nyingma view and a Galukpa view. And like part of me keeps wanting to go to the Galukpas because I'll actually learn something instead of just meditate all the time. You know, and I'm like, isn't that's a bit of a red flag? You know, um, and my teacher, Kosho, when I used to talk about study, he used to hold up two of his fingers and he would go, That's really, really good if you want to learn about Buddhism you know, and move his fingers one direction and move his head the other direction, you know, because my, it's moving my um, experience actually away from what Buddhism is about, the praxis and the practicality of Buddhism when I'm learning about it, you know, but a part of me wants to be able to codify all of this so that I can be successful at describing it so that I can feel like I've arrived in adulthood by being useful or something like that, you know? Um, and the more I get interested in that aspect of it and this kind of career thing about being a teacher, the less um, I prioritize the actual transformation, that's the whole point of it, right? Um, so inspired by that, inspired by that kind of re- revisiting the first noble truth, I wanted to revisit early Buddhism and kind of take us through the paces to show us the um, kind of arc of, um, of uh, 
different frameworks of Buddhism. So this is a thing that's often called the three turnings of the Dharma. Have people ever heard that phrase? The three or the, the wheels turn three times or the first, second, and third turning of the Dharma. This is a thing that's unique to kind of the Mahayana lens of Buddhism, specifically East Asian and Indo-Tibetan Buddhism. Theravadins are not going to talk about um, the third, the three turnings of the wheel. Basically, to them, the whole point of the Theravadin school is that the wheel turned once. Drop it. <laughs> you know? um, and um, and everything else is a bit of an embellishment, you know. And that might be fun. That might be true. That might be fine. Um, I was talking to a friend yesterday and we were talking about um, the completeness or incompleteness of any tradition or any school. You know, is Theravadan Buddhism complete? Is Zen Buddhism complete? Is Zen Buddhism incomplete because there's not a lot of academic aspects of it, you know? And if you think it's incomplete, but then some teacher presents it as a complete thing, who's right and who's wrong? You know, are they disproving you? If someone had a deep transformational or awakening experience or if you meet a teacher that only practiced zen and you're like jesus i think this person's like awoke or something you know and they only did zen and they only really they didn't talk about the four noble truths and they didn't talk about you know different treatises they just talked about kind of like chi and dragons you know and and broomsticks and stuff like that and you're like how did you transform with all, with just the zen stuff you know and does that disprove or discount or discredit a feeling of wanting to bolster your study with something else? And it's all subjective. It's all individual. And it's all a decision that you have to make, you know? And so there isn't a kind of um, right or wrong or complete or incomplete framework. There's that, that doesn't exist from its own side, you know? Um, so it's important for us to actually avail ourselves to what we feel like we need in terms of practice. And if something doesn't quite make sense or something doesn't quite meet it, if you, you know, go to the, I went to, um, I went to a little Zen center in Jemez Springs, New Mexico, um, when I was 26, I think. And there was a teacher that was 100 years old, uh, Japanese Roshi that was 100 years old. And, um, and he ended up living like five or six or seven more years after that too. Um, and he was, also, he was Leonard Cohen's teacher. And it ended up being discovered that he was pretty um, abusive actually um, and pretty unethical, uh, uh, chronically, habitually. But I went and you know, and it's in the Rinzai tradition. So you go in four times a day and you have a face-to-face -face meeting with the teacher and you're in there for seconds, you know, and he tells you a koan and he says, you know, where is God when you hear the sound? And he hits a stick on the thing. And there was, you know, it was good enough for Leonard Cohen. It was good enough for the 60 people that were there, just like awestruck, like we have the only Roshi in the, on the planet, 
you know, our teacher's the teacher. Everything else is a waste of time. This is the only person that's going to get you in line. This is the only practice that's worth a damn. Pour yourself into it. You got nothing to lose but your bullshit. You know, um, you're lucky you find, I, I remember, I, hi, I'm Koji. I'm from San Francisco Zen Center. Like, you're lucky you came here, you know, because this is where the real shit's happening, you know? And so I go in and, you know, this kind of mountain of a, he's a mountain of a small person. Um, uh, where is God when you hear the sound? And I'm kind of impressed that this guy's from 3 a.m. to 10 p.m. having interview with 60 people four times a day, just nonstop, and giving a, a one-hour lecture sitting in full lotus. He's 100 years old. Um, they wheelchair him there, and then he sits, you know. Um, and I remember, okay, so back to the coma. Where is God when you hear the sound? I don't know. I, what are you talking about? I don't care, man. Like, wh what is this supposed to do for me? You know, and I'm there with all these 60 people that are hook, line, and sinker for this, and I'm just like, am I broken? You know? Um, am I missing the boat here? You know, and then um, later a friend said to me, you know, if you're going to do that kind of practice, you got to you got to believe in that. You got to believe in that person. You know, if you don't believe in that person, that hook's not going to set. And then if you do believe in that person, then you got a whole other set of problems, depending on the character of that person. Yeah. So. Um, so that's just to say to give you permission to um, not give yourself any grief for not feeling met by one particular orthodoxy, you know, because these are orthodoxies. Um, you know, the more things are subject to a committee, the, might, the more they might be less specifically useful to you. You know, does that make any sense? You know, you ever have people come together and make a decision together, you know, and all the, and everybody wants something different. So you get something that's the closest thing to what everybody wants. So everybody gets kind of nothing that they wanted, you know, anyway. So you can uh, have an individual practice path. Yeah. Um, So starting at the beginning, so this, so this idea of the wheel turning three times is just a framework. Did the, is there a wheel? Did it really turn three times? This is a way of retroactively describing what actually looks like kind of discrepancies of continuity because of different emphasis throughout Buddhist history. So what we're going to call the first turning, what's traditionally called the first turning of the wheel, is the uh, Dharma Chakra something something Sutta, which is the literally called the turning of the wheel of Dharma. And that happened at a geographical place. I've been there, maybe, I don't know if anyone else has been there. There's a little town uh, about 10 kilometers outside of Varnasi, which is in kind of North Central India, um, called Sarnath, Sarnath. And in Sarnath, there's a little park, and there's deer there to this day. And this is the, the site of Buddha's first teaching. 
And the teaching was uh, the teaching on the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths were not necessarily set up to be the cornerstone of the whole thing. They don't reoccur a ton throughout the Buddhist canon. Um, but they've been considered fundamental because it was the first thing he decided to say. You know, so he had this kind of re this realization, and someone's like, what do you have to say about it? You know, you have to say something. What do you have to say about it? And this was the th first thing that he decided to say. It wasn't the thing that he kept coming back to over and over again, but when you trace the agenda of everything that he did say, you can say that it does relate to this kind of framework. This is, this is the diagnosis of, of the human condition. So the Four Noble Truths, the first one is the truth of dukkha. Dukkha often gets translated as suffering. Um, if you've ever been to my class, I don't think I've ever done a class where I haven't gotten to the etymology of dukkha. Um, Aka means space, and du means something like obstruction or like kind of a negation kind of word. Um, the uh, antonym of dukkha is sukha, which means joy. Um, the term dukkha, I think, is actually referring to the space in a wheel that an axle goes through. And if it's, and if it's hindered, it, the wheel doesn't turn smoothly. So rather than saying um, life is suffering, Buddha said something more like, your life feels like a wobbly wheel. Um, so um, some people have translated this as unsatisfactoriness. As, as boring as that phrase is, it might be the best, I think. Uh, some people also say stress. I think stress is pretty good too. Um, uh, suffering is a little dramatic, I think. It's a little overkill, maybe. You know, because like that feeling that I've had all my life, I mean, comparatively, I'm not going to call it suffering, you know, compared to the shit that folks have to go through. But I mean, it is, it, I'm not availing myself to the greatest experience that I can in, in, as an embodied consciousness. <laughs> you know? so, so there's stress there, unsatisfactoriness there. Now, why is there unsatisfactoriness there? And then you get to the second noble truth. There's a cause. There's a cause of unsatisfactoriness. I forget what the actual sutta says. Sometimes people say this, it's tanha, which is thirst. Um, but I think we could just summarize it as ignorance. Ignorance is the cause of unsatisfactoriness. And ignorance to what? So when we talk about ignorance in Buddhism, it's actually this term avijja, avijja. Vijja is knowledge. Um, and uh, a is a negation. So avijja means not knowledge. So the cause of suffering, the cause of dukkha, the cause of unsatisfactoriness is not knowledge. Not knowledge of what? Not knowledge of the marks of existence. Where, how, the, the, the hallmarks of existence. What are the hallmarks of existence? Impermanence and the, and the selflessness of persons. And I'm, speci I'm specifically saying the selflessness of persons because the whole emptiness thing does not really arise for another five, 600 years. 
In early Buddhism, we're talking about the selflessness of persons. Early Buddhists think that matter exists from its own side, or they didn't get into it, and most of them kind of believe that it did. You know, they believe that there's these kind of particles called dharmas, dharma with a small d, that comprise the matter, material matter. So ignorance of the impermanence and the, and the selflessness of persons. And a lot of the ways that this is described is like uh, Buddha would talk about a chariot, you know, and he's like, where, what part of the chariot is the chariot? You know, the chariot is only called a chariot because it has all of these components that are aggregated to form the function of chariotness, you know, but there is no essential chariot from its own side just a composition, a temporary composition that will eventually inevitably break down into non-chariot once again. So um, on the basis of this sense, this false sense of solitary um, fixed identity that is arising from its own side, we have an emotional relationship to objects and experiences that are predicated on something that's a fib, predicated on this sense of me. You know, me as something beyond a temporary juxtaposition of parts. So there's a strain because um, belief in selfhood is inherently impoverished. It's an, it's, an, it's an impoverished mind that, is, that has a self that it is trying to lobby for or protect yeah. or, or garner positive experiences for or positive outcomes for or comfort for. You know, the more invested you are in the project of yourself, the more um, um, mentally kind of impoverished you can be. Um, so that's so that's Buddha's agenda, or not Buddha's agenda. That's Buddha's take on why there is dukkha. Dukkha is predicated on this false sense of I-ness or mehood or independent selfhood from its own side, not understanding the selflessness of persons and the impermanence of persons, and that gives rise to suffering. Third noble truth is that there is a cessation of suffering. And um, so that's Dukkha Niroda. Uh, fourth noble truth is that there is a there's a, a path to practice. There is a path of practice. In early Buddhism, in this first turning, that path of practice is the noble eightfold path. And a lot of folks don't really clock this, but the Eightfold Path is not necessarily spoken of so much in the second and third turnings. In the second and third turnings, there's more of these altruistic motivations called the paramitas. In um, Mahayana Buddhism, we have six paramitas. In early Buddhism, they have 10 paramis. Um, And those are things like energy, um, faith, Generosity, you can look them up. I don't remember. Um, I remember all the all the <laughs> not basic stuff, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like like 
the word for ignorance rather than what the paramedics are. Um, so, yes, Richard. You're muted. Going back to the second uh, noble truth, you're tying it in with ignorance. That, that's an interesting explanation. I, I, I like it, the way you have framed that. But traditionally, we often get that presented to us as attachment is the, uh, are you differentiating between the two or are you kind of commingling them? I would say, I would say if you were going to trace back attachment, it's got its precursor in misunderstanding the selflessness of persons. Um, and I think, and I think the attachment is, um, I think the misunderstanding the selflessness of person gives rise to, uh, what we call clashes, which is afflictive emotions, which in turn give rise to attachment and aversion. And I think the after the in the when we talk about the first turning, the two most essential aspects of the first turning, I think, is going to be the four noble truths and then Praticca Samuppada, the um, the twelvefold chain of causation, which I have the graphic for today. And I would like to show it to us. Um, do I want to do that now? We only have 15, well, 20 minutes left. Um, do I want to do Paticca Samuppada? Yes. Ah, oh, gosh. So hard. This stuff takes long. Well, we got weeks, right? Um, Don, yeah. So as you were saying that, I was thinking, I was like, God, I just wish you had a PowerPoint. And then, <laughs> okay. and then like, oh, I have got a diagram. <laughs> okay, great. Okay. That's the swing vote then. I'm going to bring it up. Um, let's see here. Um, whoa, where is it? Oh, let me make sure it's the window that I have up. Or else you're all going to read my emails. Um, all right. How do I, how do I ambiguate this? Um, well, you're gonna see what you're gonna see. Let's see, okay. Share screen. Okay, do we see that? Um, okay, so uh, this is sometimes called the wheel of life. Um, does anybody know how I can get rid of this toolbar? I feel like my dad. That, yeah, right there. Hey, there we go. Oh, you know what I'll do? Will this work if I go here? Whew, that's pretty good, huh? Um, okay. Okay, dig it. So if you've ever seen that thing um, that's in the Tibetan Tonka paintings where it's a big circle and there's that like beast behind it with its mouth and claws on it, that that is a graphic representation of exactly this and this is the wheel of samsara is are the words legible on your screens um i'll try to ambiguate it here okay so remember that word avija that's in that's in little link number one here um ignorance ignorance gives rise to samkaras or activities now, if you look in the middle, you, you can see my cursor, right? Um, if you look in the middle where this says past, that means it's a pre your previous life. 
if you don't go in for previous lives, you can think of it as a previous mental moment. Previous mental moment has as two components of it, ignorance and action, not knowledge and action. Okay. So that is a previous mind moment. And that was an activity. Ignorance and action is, an, is active. So that we call that the active side of life. That ignorance and action gives rise to um, this says rebirth consciousness. So that means you, uh, um, there's a continuity of your mind. There's a continuity of mental moments. So because of your ignorance and activities, you have a, a mind conditioned by ignorance and activities. Your mind um, is embodied, namarupa, mind and matter. That mind has six senses. In Buddhism, the six senses are the traditional five plus the thinking consciousness. And if you ever forget, what's really great about memorizing the Heart Sutra is that all of early Buddhism is actually encoded into the Heart Sutra in the form of all of early Buddhism being negated in the Heart Sutra. So you have um, um, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind. Those are your six consciousness. Okay, now and they and they always differentiate in early Buddhism, where they talk about the actual organ and the consciousness that powers the organ. And when you look at the Heart Sutra, they say eyes, ears, but then they say eye consciousness, ear consciousness, because there's an idea that there's an actual energetic, like that the the capacity or function of awareness is not inherent in the organ without the consciousness that stimulates it. Um, so your, con so your embodied consciousness by way of the senses make pasa, contact. Contact with objects. Objects can be, um, so these are objects of the senses. So for the eyes, it would be form and shape and color. For ears, it would be sounds, nose, smells, tongue, and taste. Does this sound familiar? Uh, 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 harmony of the relative and the absolute, if you've ever done that chant. Eyes and sights, ears and sounds, nose and smells, tongue and taste. Then with mind, it's mental formations. The objects of the mind consciousness is what we call samskaras or mental formations. So just like a rock can be an object of your eyeball consciousness, a notion is the object of your thinking consciousness. Right? Now, when your consciousness, which has been conditioned by previous moments of ignorant inactivities, when it comes into contact with objects, it, you, what arises immediately is a vedna, or a feeling tone. It says feeling right here. But as, as English speakers, when we hear the word feeling, we kind of think of our feelings. But that's not what this is really talking about. This is a technical term. Vedna means a, a feeling tone. And those are shades of positive and negative and nothing more. Nothing complicated. We're not talking about emotions at this juncture. Yeah. Now, when you have a belief in the self, a feeling tone carries with it information about what comes next. Predicated on a belief in an, in, an individual arising from my own side, the feeling tone gives rise to craving. Yeah. So this is attachment and aversion. 
you know, exaggerating the positive qualities of an object, thinking that being in proximity to them will ensure my happiness or exaggerating the negative qualities of an object, thinking that separation from them will increase happiness, right? So craving. Craving gives rise to attachment. And attachment because bhava, that makes you who you are. Bhava means the action of becoming, makes you who you are. And then you, uh, you're born and die over and over again. <laughs> um, so if you look in the middle here, we get active, passive, active, passive. So this whole thing, number three through number seven, is passive. And that's something that I was trying to get at last week when I was talking about meditation. Your experiences all the way through the feeling tone are based on all of your previous experiences. It's all based on your karma. So the meaning that your mind makes out of, out of what it encounters are just based on what your mind has gone through from beginning less time. Yeah. Um, so this is important when we talk about meditation. Actually, the whole point of meditation, when we look at this map, it decodes what it's all about. So first connection. So let's see. First and third connection, we won't worry about. So I think what's important is the second connection here. This leap from feeling to craving, feeling to craving. So the more we train in... Um, in uh, non-identifying and unconstricting, physically and mentally, because the physical constriction actually can be a precursor to the mental constriction and vice versa. Yeah. The, the more that we unfurl ourselves from around self-identity and self-clinging, the more we can experience a feeling tone without it giving rise to craving, which leads to attachment and becoming. And when you, when you think of that, and then you think of the prescription of Zazen or Shikantaza, sit still, don't touch your mind. You know, things are going to arise and you watch things rise and you're becoming the kind of person that can have an immense capacity for feeling tones without feeling tones engendering craving. So that's one way of talking about zazen, and I think, in especially in the early phases, that's a very, very helpful way of framing it. Yeah. Um, and then to help that along, eventually, I'm going to uh, unshare. Are we all okay with that? I can send this to you, or if you Google "wheel of samsara," or "wheel of life," or "twelvefold chain of causation," you'll find that or a 12-fold chain of codependent origination. Um, in Sanskrit, it probably is called Nidanas, the 12 Nidanas. Um, so 600 years later, yeah, five, 600 years later, we get to this new thing where, um, you know, the teachings, when Buddha died, a lot of the monks were just kind of like, okay, how does that work though? Or, you know, there's all these things that he said. You ever, you ever been given instruction on something and you're just kind of like, and, and it makes sense to you at that moment. 
you know, and someone or like someone says, uh, there's this thing at work where there was a employee survey and they're like, so, you know, do, so do your employee surveys and everybody's like, okay. And then we go to the computer and then when we get to the computer, we're like, well, where the hell is it? Is it in my email? Is it on the dashboard of my little homepage thing? Like, where is the employee survey? And it didn't, it retroactively, you had to figure out what, what was that? After Buddha died, there was no one to ask, you know? So Buddha's like, you know, and then your karma and your consciousness and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they didn't know what any of it was. Well, where does your karma live? You know? So then they started kind of um, doing kind of, you could say speculative, but you could say also empirical in the sense that you can be empirical about your own experience, which is dodgy. But from a meditative point of view, going into themselves and being like, okay, what, how could we describe this? And then you get this whole thing called Abhidhamma or super Dharma. And the Abhidhamma is kind of uh, the descriptions of the mental factors. Um, and that's when you hear people talk about the three baskets or the tripitaka, the third pitaka is the Abhidhamma. Buddha didn't teach Abhidhamma. Abhidhamma is exegesis based on the sutras or on the suttas, the early discourses. Um, so after 500 years of Abhidhamma, this chap called Nagarjuna shows up and he's like, you guys, this is, you're, you're going cuckoo over here because they're doing what Indian boys did. And Indian boys of, of the leisure of monastic life got to do was just arguing with each other about metaphysics and how things exist. You know, and Nagarjuna is like, any position you can have, cast a shadow, you know? And the only, the only position is no position, you know? And if you look at the suttas, Buddha kept taking no position in terms of, in terms of metaphysics. Yeah. He was just saying, everything's a dynamic. Everything, everything is contingency. Everything is consequence, you know? So one of the schools of Nagarjuna's thought is called the, um, you know, Nagarjuna taught the Majyamika or the middle way school. The Majyamika is the middle way between um, uh, eternalism and nihilism. And then um, the kind of what is believed to be the most correct interpretation of Nagarjuna's Majyamika school is called Majyamika Prasangika. And that means consequence only. So the middle way, consequence only philosophical school. So that's believed to be a kind of hearkening back to the agenda of early Buddhism. But a unique feature of this, because this is arising at the same time as the Mahayana and this literature that we call the Prajnaparamita literature, which includes the Diamond Sutra and the Heart Sutra. So Prajnaparamita literature Prajna means wisdom. Paramita means perfected. Prajna literature is very big. Um, the Heart Sutra is the uh, Prajna Paramita Hridaya Sutra. Hridaya means the essence of. It also means literally anatomically heart, but it means the essence of, of the sutra. So the uh, Heart Sutra is actually, when we hear the Heart Sutra, we think, oh, heart, but it's not really like that, it kind of means essence. It's like Cliff's notes. It's like the gist of the Prajnaparamita. 
because there's Project Paramita in 12,000 stanzas, 10,000 stanzas, 8,000 stanzas. Heart Sutra is 25 stanzas. Yeah. And what's when people talk about the difference between early Buddhism and Mahayana Buddhism, and I, I use the term early Buddhism. I don't like using the term Hinayana Buddhism. It's a bit pejorative, you know? And I don't like using the term Theravadan because Hinayana and Theravadan are not synonyms. Because um, Theravadan has its own history after Buddha died and its own influences that are not purely Buddha's lifetime, you know? Um, but when people talk about the difference between early Buddhism and Mahayana Buddhism, which make, let's not be foolish and say that Mahayana Buddhism was taught by Buddha and that Buddha was talking about bodhisattvas and um, that Buddha was teaching, you know, um, things like the bodhisattva path or, or that Buddha spoke the Prajnaparamita Sutra. Like it's, we, we, it's okay that, that Buddhist philosophy evolved after Buddha's death, you know? And a lot of people try to trace it back. If you go to a very orthodox Chinese monastery or Tibetan monastery, they'll be like, well, the Mahayana teachings are so sophisticated that they were hidden from the general public. And so, I don't, I don't think so. Because if you look at the rest of Indian, Indian um, philosophical and religious history, you could see all the cross-contamination of new ideas giving rise to new things and, and borrowed deities and borrowed concepts and stuff like that, you know? So, but a lot of times when people talk about the difference between the two of them, early Buddhism and Mahayana would be like, well, early Buddhism is the vehicle for solitary, you know, in solitary realization, like the arhats. They're, they're just worried about awakening themselves. A Mahayana Buddhism is altruistic. And we're trying to become bodhisattvas and we don't want to enter nirvana until all sentient beings have been liberated. That's fine. Um, I don't think it's the most important aspect of the difference between early Buddhism and Mahayana Buddhism. I think that from what influenced the practice as much or more, no, maybe not more, as important as the altruistic motivation that arose in Mahayana Buddhism is that we went from the selflessness of persons to the selflessness of all compound phenomena. So objects, they weren't really talking about the selflessness of objects until about 1100 AD. Yeah. Now, in one minute, I'm going to get to the third turning. <laughs> Shortly after that, so that's when we have the beginning of emptiness, you know, this notion of emptiness. And then a little bit after that, because emptiness doesn't give you a lot to work with. It's Nagarjuna's, um, Arya Nagarjuna's whole Majyamika, the middle way thing of like no positions, good positions. Like, well, then how the hell do you practice? So taking that basis of that philosophy of emptiness became the the figuring out how to do the yogic practice of it arose the yoga practice school or the yogachara school. And that can be called the third turning. And the yogachara school kind of talked about how emptiness functions and the psychology of how emptiness functions. And that became the underpinning of what was going to become the Zen traditions and 
I would say the Tendai tradition, a lot of the East Asian schools are all influenced by Yogacara and the Nyingma and Kagyu um, traditions of Tibetan Buddhism. If you ever heard of Dzogchen or natural perfection practices, um, I think Betty Holmes, if you know Betty Holmes practices Dzogchen, uh, her teacher is Lama Surya Das, who teaches Dzogchen. Um, uh, that's coming from the same from the same kind of Yogacara tradition. And the third turning puts emphasis on Buddha nature and emphasis on innate awakening, you know, and is actually approaching the practice of awakening from the opposite direction. Um, I'm sorry, Aunt, I'm sorry that I'm going over. I'm, I promise you're not gonna miss much. I'm gonna go like one, one more minute. Okay, bye-bye, thank you. Um, uh, so I've said this a few times. In early Buddhism, it's kind of like you minus your imperfections or your impurities or your negativities is awakened. After this third, th third wheel turning with this emphasis on innate awakening or original awakening, original enlightenment, Buddha nature, it's you plus nothing is awakened. It's a different way of talking about it. Because the idea is that all of those impurities do not exist from their own side and they're adventitious. They, 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 were, they never had to be there in the first place. You know? So you're approaching that process of awakening through um, what is it? So one way of describing this would be um, Let's say you're going to drive to uh, San Antonio because almost all of you are from Austin or I have spent time in Austin, all by like two of you. But let's say you're going from Austin to San Antonio. And the, the um, early Buddhism is a regular like Google Maps, turn right, turn left kind of thing, you know? Second wheel Buddhism Emptiness Buddhism, Prashnaparamita Buddhism is like, okay, you're going to leave West Campus. I lived in West Campus, so this is my point of reference. You're going to leave West Campus, and you go down D. Keaton, and you're going to get on 35 or whatever, right? You're going to get on 35, and you're going to go towards San Antonio. You're going to see an exit for 6th. Don't get off there. You're going to see an exit in South Austin, for where, what's, what's that place with the Indian food where they sell the beer? The whip in. You're going to see the whip in. Don't get off there. You're going to see uh, Ross and Trudy's or whatever. Don't get off there. You're going to go by the San Marcos outlets. Don't get off there. That's emptiness boosm. It's telling you wherever, it's telling you all the false constructions, all the things that are not San Antonio, you know? And then third wheel turning is like, this is what San Antonio is like. You're originally San Antonio. Find San Antonio. You know, it's from the point of view of the place itself. You know, the, it's from the it's taking the view of awakening as its starting point. 